Hello and welcome to the Second Tier Podcast. I'm Ryan Dilks and I'm joined by the Middlesbrough Aaron Connolly to the Hull Aaron Connolly. It's Justin Peach. Good day to you, Ryan. How are you, Justin? Yeah, probably about as good as Aaron Connolly right now, maybe. Or actually, maybe not because his confidence is going to be sky high. Mine's, mine's at a moderate level. It's just a normal <laughs> Sunday for me. <laughs> <laughs> I like this to be a regular thing, actually, where we check in on your confidence level before every <laughs> podcast, because that would be something I'd quite enjoy. Get, just to give us an idea of your confidence levels, when when is your confidence sky high heading into a podcast? Heading into a podcast, um, maybe when I've just when everything aligns in terms of watching the games, having my notes perfected, um, you know, seeing all the feedback from supporters on socials. When all of that aligns, sometimes it doesn't always align, so I don't always have the full the full feedback. But as well as that, um, you know, I'm in a hoodie today. Like last week, my confidence was quite high. I was in a, I was in a shirt and a t-shirt. Whereas today, I'm in a hoodie, so I'm a bit more I'm a bit more chill, a bit more relaxed today. So maybe that's a, a bit more of a a bit more of a telling of where I'm at. There you go. So if Justin is wearing clothing that covers up his body more, then that's a sign that his confidence levels are all right. Out of interest, when's your confidence low? Um. When's my confidence low? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very naive. I, I don't tend to have sort of low confidence heading into a podcast because we're just talking about football. We don't need to have low confidence. Um, but maybe I don't know. I, I, I woke up this morning and I, I caught the back of my heel. Um, <laughs> I caught the back of my heel with my toenail, made it bleed, and it was really sore. And I got in the shower and it was really sore. Right. This is where I'm going with it. Um, Please so that tell me this story me... has well, that, 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 a that, solution that... to the end of it. <laughs> That maybe set me up for a, for a, for a bad day, and I think going. You know, I went to the gym straight after, and I was like, ah, oh, it's rubbing against my soul, like a bit like a blister. So I didn't really hit the, sort of the, the heavy lifts that I wanted to hit. So sort of put that aside, and then you know straight into the podcast, which brought my confidence back up again. So maybe that's 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 a playing. I don't know. I've never really thought about it. Welcome to the number one championship podcast, the second tier. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. If you haven't turned off yet, then thank you. <laughs> I would completely understand Sorry. if you had. Uh, but yeah, this is the number one championship podcast, the second tier. We're going to go through the three games that are in the championship this weekend. Uh, FA Cup weekend, of course. So not too much for us to talk about in terms of action, but there's been plenty of action in terms of managerial changes in the championship. So we'll talk about them in the news, particularly at Wigan and also at Cardiff, where Sabli Mushi is the new manager there. But we'll talk about that, talk about all the transfers that have happened in the past few days, as well there's been plenty of action in the you know, remaining days of the transfer window. And then we'll finish off with a little game right at the end. So let's go around the grounds, shall we, Justin? And we'll start off with Middlesbrough, who beat Watford 2-0. And this looked like, on paper, that it could be a tricky game for Middlesbrough, but it actually ended up being very comfortable. It was a really good performance from from Borough. Um, I wasn't. I won't say I'm, I'm surprised by it because they have that they have that potential. But their their games against the um, uh, you know the big games, I should say, they've been they've been so so. You to go back to that Bur- uh, Burnley game, um, and they were they were okay. They were solid, but they didn't really create too much. But here they were they were fantastic, um, and I was really impressed with the that front three. Well, not, it's not really a front uh, a front three. It's just Marcus Force, Chubap, uh, Chubap, uh, Akpom, and um, Cameron Archer. They were they were superb. Um, and then I should pay attention to Riley McGree because he was great as well. But those three in particular were absolutely fantastic, um, and it's a really exciting, a really exciting, um, you know, attacking. What's a what's a trio partnership? An attacking trio, or is it? You know, how do you partnership with with three? Holy Trinity. 
Yeah, an attacking holy trinity, uh, an attacking trinity. It was it was really really good and really effective in this game. Um, but overall, they they bossed the game. They were very comfortable. They controlled it in and out of possession. Watford weren't great, but Burrow were very professional, um, and it was a really good performance. So, you know, Johnny Howson and Hayden, uh, and Hackney, Hayden Hackney, for example, were fantastic in the middle of the park, and that really set the platform for for Burrow to kick on in that final third. Yeah, they had a lot of opportunities where they've had a shot. And then the ball's scrambling around in the area. But they didn't manage to put any of those away. Having said that, maybe a 2-0 scoreline is actually doing Watford a lot more, uh, a lot of flattery in that sense. Mm. Because I, I felt like Middlesbrough could have actually won this by a few more, really. Chibratpom's goal was very hard. Cameron Archer's got through on goal. His shot saved. And then it fills to Akpom, who... Heads it from about the penalty spot. The, ball, the ball's gone straight up in the end. And nine times out of ten, that doesn't go in. But <laughs> Akpom, in the form that he's in, you know, it just happens, I suppose. But Middlesbrough now up to third with this win. And you've got to say, looking like a bankable side to be a playoff team come the end of the season, aren't they? And obviously they're strengthening as well, um, or they have strengthened. So they've cut, they've they were doing okay, or doing more than okay coming into the January transfer window, and they're coming out of the January transfer window with a a much uh, a much better squad, a much stronger squad. So certainly, yeah, you'd, you'd expect them to um, to push on because we were saying this this time last year under Chris Wilder, and they dropped off, and they dropped off because of a lack of goals, because of a lack of creativity at certain points. But really, it was a lack of goals that were, that were an issue. But when you've got Akpom in the form he is, uh, in the form he's in, um, Cameron Archer as well coming in, I'd, he's going to take some time, I think, to really start to you know, look really good in this Borough team, really clinical. And then uh, Force as well, who's finally hit form. Um, it, it's, it's, it all seems to be aligning at the right time for, for Borough. Um, maybe you need one or two. Obviously, Dan, Dan Barlas is coming in, which is a fantastic signing. Maybe need one more attacking option if I'm if I'm being greedy, if Borough being greedy. But yeah, I certainly certainly are bankable because, as I say, they, they look they're looking good and they're going to look even better when the um, when the uh, transfers are, are all bedded in. Yeah, it must be such an exciting time to be a Middlesbrough fan because you've got a team full of confidence and even when they lose a game they still manage to bounce back instantly in the game afterwards and they're playing exciting football as well because it's on the front foot and they're dominating most games I must if I was a Middlesbrough fan I'd be heading to the Riverside Stadium each week just you know Mm -hmm. expecting a result (laughs) and expecting at least a good performance on on uh, to add as well so there, there were just so many positives from Michael Carrick's Middlesbrough and they're turning out to be a real force to be reckoned with and in a normal season they probably would be in the top two at this point wouldn't they because they're winning so many games I mean how many teams can you think of in past championship seasons who have gone as many games as they have where they've lost two in ten or something like that but won every other game it is pretty remarkable isn't it but you know because the top two are so far ahead it just looks like that's not going to happen. However, if they keep winning games, at least they'll put the pressure on Burnley and Sheffield United to keep up the form that they've shown. So, yeah, a, a lot of positives from Middlesbrough. And, uh, yeah, I think um, if I was a Middlesbrough fan right now, going to each game, I'd be very excited about what's going to happen each Saturday afternoon. But just three wins in nine for Watford now. They didn't cause Middlesbrough t- too much trouble. And I think that's probably the most disappointing th- thing for me, Justin. We saw Watford... Uh, we say Watford are a very hit and miss team, and this was a very comfortable miss in that sense, wasn't it? 
<laughs> yeah, it was. It was. It was poor. It was really poor. Um, just in possession, they were sloppy. Passes weren't going to, um, to 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 players. It was just really disappointing, and it's that lack of consistency that's that's harming them. I know. I know some Blackburn Blackburn fans will be um, pointing the finger at us and, and wondering why we're we're so sort of confident of Watford finishing the top six when they're as inconsistent as Blackburn. But it's mainly down to the quality of player, and I think that new those new players that have come in in January. I think it's seven or eight. I can't remember the exact number, um, but that's a lot of signings to bed in and get uh, you know and get um, into a cohesive group uh, for Billich. And it's, it's a difficult thing to do. And I've said three times now. I think this in this month um, that it's going to take time for Watford to really get the best out of the, what they've got at the moment. Um, but I think they've been let down as well by experienced players, which isn't helpful. You know, Ismail Assar was pretty much absent in this game, really ineffective. Um, Kamara was not very inspiring at, at left wing back either. So there are a lot of issues there for Bilic that needs that still need to be resolved. I thought it would have been done by now, which may put the pressure on him going forward. You know, it would be pretty daft to, to sack him, but you can't rule it out with Watford. I don't think he should be, by the way, um, but you just can't rule it out with Watford, especially if performances don't improve. Um, but this lack of consistency is a major issue. I don't think it's going to improve in the next two or three weeks. It's going to you know, probably take five or six games for it to, to really... To really, um, yeah, show what this team's about because some good, good individuals—they just need gelling. Yeah, they're quickly becoming the team who you look at in the championship table and go, "How are that team so high?" Because mm. they're very Jekyll and Hyde, aren't they? The thing is, though, when they're Hyde, they're still sometimes still good enough to get something from a game. Hyde or is it Jekyll? I can't remember the story. No, Jekyll's the bad one, isn't it? <laughs> I, I don't know. I think I didn't. I didn't get yeah, to that level in the English lit. Yeah, Hyde is the doctor. I think. Anyway, um, this isn't an English literature podcast. Jekyll's the bad guy. I think. So when they're Jekyll, <laughs> they're sometimes still good enough to get something from a game. But you know, sh- should a promotion chasing side be Jekyll and Hyde in the first place? Probably not. And the thing is, for me, I think Watford will finish in the playoffs. That belief does get tested quite often. When, uh, particularly when I see games like this. I, th- I think they still will. However, if they do finish in the playoffs, do we actually see them winning the whole thing? Because it's all well and good getting there. You've actually got to win the bugger, haven't you? I'd be surprised if Watford did actually win the playoffs just mm-hmm. because it's it's been a long time since we've seen back-to-back games where they've been convincing. That's a good point. And they're just, they're just a very difficult team to put your finger on. And Stavon Bilic is kind of sheltered from a lot of flack but I don't think he's completely blameless in this scenario if a team turns up for some games but then doesn't for others the manager's got to take some of the blame for that especially now that he has been supported quite a lot in this transfer window with quite a few signings so it wouldn't surprise me actually if they sacked him because we know what Watford's owners are like and they're not in the greatest of forms right now Watford have sacked managers for a lot less so I don't think that would be the right call. Uh, at the same time, as much as we give Billich a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of leeway for um, you know Watford's troubles this season, I think he he's not completely blameless. Is the best way yeah. of putting it. Uh, let's go to Coventry. They got their first win in six by beating Huddersfield 2-0. Justin Peach predicted Huddersfield to not even have a shot on target in this game. That wasn't the case, but having said that, it was so comfortable for Coventry that Huddersfield may as well have not had a shot on target. Yeah, they could have had their deck chairs out um, in this game. It was, 
I, it's pretty it's a pretty damning statement isn't it that you know I think that the defense could honestly have had deck chairs out and Huddersfield still wouldn't have a clue as to how to create a good clear opening opportunity and um, they are so they're so devoid of ideas going forward but Coventry were brilliant they were brilliant and you know the, the first half was a bit tepid I think that's to be the case given that both teams have low you know pretty low on confidence considering runs and, and form of late but Coventry then took control in the game and Huddersfield just had absolutely no answer I know there was no Nokia or Waghorn um, but still there was a good experienced team out there um, and I'm still left a little bit bemused by by Mark Fotheringham and his, and his choice of his choice of players um, you know you look at Etienne Kamara not even in the squad Diara didn't get on the pitch um, ben Jackson at left wing back I'd rather give him an opportunity than Josh Ruffles who is probably a league one standard left back unfortunately um, so there are just a lot of a lot of issues there that I don't think are going to get ironed out by Mark Fotheringham and as I say Coventry it was it, it was an easy game for them um, it was an easy game for them and I'm glad I got it right because you know confidence has been low in terms of picking out uh, picking out um, winners uh, in pre-game in pre-game previews that's when you're heading to a podcast with low confidence <laughs> levels. It's when you're when you're on a winless run in terms of predictions. Why is it not sky high? God. <laughs> well, Huddersfield had somewhat of an upturn in form around Christmas time, didn't they? Mm-hmm. However, it seems like they're reverting back to the Huddersfield that we've become used to this season, where they provide very little in convincing showings. And this performance was just so mediocre, wasn't it? And Having watched this game, it just made me all the more outraged listening to Mark Fotheringham afterwards. <laughs> he said he thought it was an even game. He must have been watching a completely different game to me and everyone else from the sounds of it. Because I don't know if I'm being harsh here, Justin. I find him to be a very unlikable manager. And I feel bad saying that. However, I don't think I've ever heard a manager just be wrong in as many interviews as he is. Because... Let's be honest, he lies a lot, doesn't he? That, that is the bluntest way of putting it. But in his, if, if his post-match interviews were true, Huddersfield would be top of the league when it comes to XG because he seems to think they are unlucky in every single game. And he he, he seems to have a, a lot more of a, a generous view about how Huddersfield have been playing than, a, than everyone else seems mm-hmm. to, having watched Huddersfield this season. And... I think also, if I was a Huddersfield fan right now, I would want someone to tell me like it is, you know. Someone to say, someone to say, look, we're not doing very well right now, but we're putting a lot of work on the training ground to try and get things right and hopefully results will turn. Whereas Mark Fotheringham is saying, oh, we're, we're unlucky, but I'm a really good coach and, you know, we, we will get it right in the end and we will stay up. And I think yeah. I'd get really wound up if we just lost a game and then I had to listen to Mark Fotheringham afterwards say we played well when we didn't. Do you know what I mean? I, you know what? You've made a really good point. Um, and I was going to lean in towards, well, you're either chatting bollocks or he's completely blinded by optimism. But you're absolutely spot on. As a, as a supporter, you want to hear your manager just tell the truth and just say we were really poor going forwards. Um, we need to improve. We're in a dogfight. If we don't improve, we'll go down. Just a bit of reality needs to set in for Mark Fotheringham because they've not improved. Well, they have improved marginally in his time at the club, um, but they're still completely non-existent going forward. Um, 
I know Huddersfield fans will say they've had shots on target in previous games, but they're not creating enough opportunities um, to get ahead in games. You look at the defending for the Gus, Gus Hamer goal, beautiful goal by Hamer, but he literally runs in between three or four players. As a manager, as a coach, if I saw that, I would be fuming. Someone take charge of the situation. No one at Huddersfield is taking charge of the situation. The players aren't on the pitch. Fotheringham isn't isn't doing it in his in his pre uh, post match press conferences, and the hierarchy are just absent. Um, there's just no control at that football club whatsoever. I think that's the easiest way to 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 really put it in a nutshell for Huddersfield at the moment. Yeah, uh, very well put. I've got to say. So let's go back to the game, and I think. It's another game where I've come away from it being very impressed by Victor Jacarez. I I think he probably had as good a game a striker could have without scoring. I can't recall too many other strikers at this level who, you know, get the ball on the halfway line like him and then make something happen. Because he really is in a class of his own in that respect. He has so much pace, power and ability that he's constantly a thorn in the side of any opposition he comes up against. And he is a Premier League striker, isn't he? I think he would flourish in a lot of Premier League sides, particularly towards the bottom of the table where, you know, you're on the back foot throughout a game, but then, you know, you can ping the ball up to him and then he can make something happen on his own. I think he he offers you so much more than just scoring goals. And that what that's what makes him a really, really talented player in that respect. But as I say, first win in six for Coventry and, you know, this would have been the much needed win that they've been chasing considering they, it looked as if their playoff hopes were drifting away, weren't they, Justin? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think they, they are, they have obviously strengthened and you look at Luke Manali in this game, for example, he was brilliant. He was exactly what that, um, that team needed. Just someone in that, in that back three who's composed with the ball Um and and he's he's got a point to prove as well. Obviously, Bernie he's not really been given the chance at Bernie, and he came and he stepped up was and was fantastic. Um, and then Ben Sheaf and Gus, Gus Hamer in the middle of the park were were absolutely superb. I know you picked out Ben Sheaf as one of your underrated players in the championship. I think this performance pretty much shows why he is that that sort of player. And I can only imagine that you know if he, if he's you know Gus Hamer gets a lot of the plaudits, but Ben Sheaf. I'd, I'd value him very close to what I'd value Gus Hamer in terms of if I'm if I'm expecting a fee for them because he's he's such a good player just doesn't have that ability to pick a pass or, or score like or uh, a score like Hamer does and then Casey Palmer again you know he's, he's his form I think has picked up massively in the last few months and he's he's been a real difference for him he stepped up in O'Hare's in her in O'Hare's shadow as well which is which is much needed so this was a really good performance it's Coventry getting back to what they the second half especially. Coventry getting back to what they were good at and I think if they can build on that then yeah you can't really rule them out because we've seen that if they gather momentum they're a very hard team to stop and Aaron Connolly double on his birthday helped Hull beat QPR 3-0 considering he was so unconvincing at Middlesbrough last season and he hasn't had much luck since then Justin he was incredible here <laughs> wasn't he he was superb, um, and I—I'll be honest, I was surprised. He, I, you know, going back to that Sheffield United game last week, he missed that one-on-one -on -one with Fodderingham. It was—it was a really big chance in the game, and you'd expect him his head to dip. And I think um, I read an interview where he's, you know, he was looking back on his previous spells, and he's admitted himself that he's not been professional enough. So I think the penny's dropping for him now. He's 23, or it was his 23rd birthday yesterday, I think it was. Um, so he's at a point in his career where he needs to step up. And I think if he can 
take this performance and just show uh, 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 build on it as a cliche is build on it and and use it as a benchmark for him to to go uh, to carry on he can fulfill the early potential he had because he played a lot of games for Brighton in the Premier League um, and it just dropped off but if you look at his two finishes they were superb and I know QPR's defending for the second goal was generally some of the worst you'll see in the championship this season he had so much space so much time in space it was ridiculous but his finish was was great, and he and he missed that finish last week. He missed that chance last week, and he scored it this week, which is which is superb. But he was he was great, a constant thorn inside of QPR. I mean, you've got a player who can work hard and is clinical. It's a very good place to be. Yeah, he he looks a very different player to the one from last season, mm-hmm. doesn't he? And you know, it's only been a couple of games now, or a handful of games that he's been at Hull. But if this is the Aaron Conley that we're going to have for the remainder of the season, then him and Esther Pinyan up front. <laughs> That is a very, very good partnership, isn't it? But I, I think this was a great showcase in why Liam Rosinia is the right man in charge of Hall. They've lost one in their last eight now. Drawn a few games in that time, but still, they've stopped the losses. And that's a big start, considering what they were doing under of Ladzi before. And most importantly, the goals they've been conceding have dried up as well. They haven't conceded more than one goal in a game in more than two months now. That might not sound too impressive, but considering how many uh, how many goals they were conceding when Shotter Avaladze was in charge before, they were absolutely shocking at the back. So Rosinia has really tightened them up in that respect. But they've got a lot more uh, convincing going forwards as well. It has helped with you know signings like Connolly. But I'm getting strong signs of encouragement from Liam Rosinia. At Hull. Of course, he's got the connections to Hull anyway, and he's going to have a lot of backing from the new owners who are very keen to make their mark in Hull. But he seems to be the right man guiding the ship. And that's so important because it's all well and good signing all these you know, big name players. But if you've got a manager who is completely clueless, then it yeah. means absolutely nothing. Liam Rosini has clearly got his head screwed on in that respect. So I'm quite excited about what happens with Hall Nexus uh, under Liam Rosini. And it may take, you know, a couple of seasons for them to actually do anything too significant. But, you know, think think back to when Rosini was in charge, Justin Hall looked like they were in great danger of going down. And yeah. now that's not an issue at all, is it? Hull are not going yeah. down this season now. So it's more a case of them looking up as opposed to looking down. And that's always a good start when you're a manager. Um, what did you make of QPR here, Justin? I, It reminded me of a few seasons ago. Do you remember that season when QPR were incredible going forwards, but an absolute shambles at the back? It reminded yeah. me of that season with them defensively. They didn't offer much going forwards here either. So that's not a good mix, is it? They were, they were bad. Uh, there isn't much we need to say. If if people watch the highlights, they will see how bad QPR. So it's really hard to try and sum that up in a podcast um, because you can literally just watch a two-minute clip of the highlights and go, oh my God, they were dreadful. It was some of the worst defending you'll see in the Championship this season. Uh, I've already highlighted the third goal for, for Connolly where it, it, the defence is all over the place, the line's all over the place, and he's got so much time and space um, to... Um, to, to basically put the ball beyond beyond the keeper. Um, it was a passive performance from QPR and I, I've seen the response from supporters online. It's that I don't blame them. I don't think they need to have a meltdown, but I don't blame them. It is that type of performance where it makes a fan base melt down. Um, it was that bad. And it was, you know, you go into that sort of game where you're quite confident where you can probably get a result because of Hull's winless run at, at home. But Hull were 
by far the better team. QPR were, were dreadful. Um, and as I say, it was passive. And at no point in the game did they did they ever look like they were going to threaten um, Hall's lead. It was just so, so poor. I feel for Neil Critchley because I do think this decline this season started under McBeal. And it's just, we've had moments where it's gone up a little bit, but the decline started under Beal. It's not Critchley. He's got to fix a lot of things that were that were present under Beal, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm very confident that Neil Critchley is the right man in charge. However, for from a QPR perspective, if I was a QPR fan, I would be looking at the management right now and thinking, why have we appointed this guy? I think he's got a lot of convincing to do with QPR fans because, you know, Mick Beale was, in periods, we've got to remember, very good. QPR mm-hmm. were top at one point, I think, under yeah. Mick Beale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now... You look at it thinking, where is this club going with this new guy in charge? So I think there's got to be patience with Critchley and I don't expect them to do anything too significant this season. And I think it will take a lot of time for Critchley to prove that he is the right man there. But that time he may not have because QPR fans are unconvinced and it takes a while for you know managers to win around supporters. And when... How many games have they gone without a win now, Justin? It must be something like I think they're without a win in six now, aren't they, or something like that? It's been it's been a while since um, they've won a game, and managers win around supporters by winning games, and they're not doing that at the moment. They've made a couple of new signings in the window, but a lot of players are underperforming in this team. Rob Dickey, for example, is a <laughs> shadow of the Rob Dickey that we saw before. I'm not sure what's happened to him. Chris Willock as well, he, he was playing poorly under McBeal towards the end of his reign, but he's gone from being one of the best players in the Championship last season now to not even starting for QPR because his performances mm-hmm. have dropped off the cliff. So Chris Lee has got his hands full with this team, but it may take um, it, it may take time for him to win around supporters and that's that, that's what I'm getting at. It, it, he may not get that chance to win around the supporters because I, I think supporters won't give him as much time as they would with other managers who are yeah. who are bigger names than Neil Critchley is what I'm trying to say. Justin, let's take a quick break. After that, we'll talk about some of the news from the past few days, including a couple of managerial changes in the Championship. Welcome back to the Second Tier Podcast, and now it's time for this. Yes, it's time for the news, and Colo Torre has been sacked as Wigan manager less than two months after being appointed and having only been in charge for nine games. Commenting on the decision, Wigan Chief Exec Malachi Brannigan said the board felt it necessary to give us the best possible chance of remaining a championship club next season. Former Latics midfielder Sean Maloney is his replacement. A couple of stats for you, Justin. This one from Rich Jolly. Colo Torre was in charge for of Wigan for 10 days longer than Liz Truss was in charge of the UK. And this yes. one from Rich Hardy. 33% of Colo Torre's managerial career has been against Luton. That's because they had a replay in the FA Cup and they met each other in the league. Um, it's usually a bit mad for a club to sack two managers in the same season, but... This had to happen, didn't it? It's it's usually mad, but it's not mad when you consider how 
I wouldn't say poorly run Wigan are, but how much of a, a bad a lack of ideas they had when sacking Richardson. Because I don't, I think that was a, um, a sort of a, a what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it was a good move. It wasn't. It didn't feel like it was. There was a thought behind it. It just felt like they you know, a sort of donkey kicked him out. Um, if that made sense. So there's a there's a word. There's a phrase for it. But I can't remember. I'm just having um, this image now of Liam Richardson literally getting donkey kicked out of the DW Stadium, which is a shame because he was a great character at the club. Um, I'm sure that didn't happen, but we can only speculate. <laughs> um, and then it, and and you know the amount of time it took to appoint his successor and the amount of names that were linked to the job. Sean Maloney was interviewed for the role back when Colo Torre was appointed. So why wasn't Maloney convincing them? Why was Colo Torre more convincing them? Why was Yara Torre more convincing than both of them at that point? It, it, I, it's really hard to put your finger on what is, what is the thought process behind Wigan Athletic's decision-making at the top level um, when it comes to managers. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I felt like they, they struck gold with Richardson um, and now they'd left without too many ideas. For, for Maloney, I'm not overly convinced, um, mainly because he has a similar style of play or ideas to, to Colo Torre. Colo Torre ran into issues. I think Maloney ran into the same issues. Um, and maybe his affinity, he brought Graham Barber back in um, in the coaching staff, so maybe his affinity with Wigan might help him a little bit more than it did with Colo Torre. Um, and yeah, Maloney's spell as manager of Hibs didn't work out last year either. So I'm not convinced, but I think if, you know, if, Without getting an experienced manager, I, I don't think I'd ever be convinced by by Wigan's decision making. It is a bit mad to think, isn't it, that if Colo Torre hadn't have appointed Colo Torre, then their first choice was Yaya Torre. I I'm still bamboozled about what the thinking was with this appointment. Getting an inexperienced manager in to manage a club who were on such a big decline like Wigan were just. What? What? Why? Why were you doing this? <laughs> there were so many yeah. experienced managers out there who they could have potentially got in. I mean, Blackpool have got me McCarthy, for example. That would have made sense. Yeah. But instead, they decided to gamble on an inexperienced young manager in Colo Torre, and it it just it was a bamboozling decision at the time to do that, especially after getting rid of a manager who was doing all right in Liam Richardson. Things were going a bit sour towards the end, but you see what I mean. I don't really understand what Colo Torre got out of this either, because I remember when he got appointed a couple of months ago, Justin, we were saying that he must have seen something at Wigan for him to go for the job. And I don't know what that thing was, because we're two points from, what was it, nine games in charge? Yeah. Why? He had a very cushy job at Leicester, didn't he, as a coach under Brennan Rodgers, and He's thrown it all away to get sacked after less than two months in charge of Wigan. Yeah. So very strange, very strange goings on there. But, you know, in fairness to the Wigan board, we can criticise them for appointing Torre in the first place, getting rid of Richardson. But you've got to give them credit for accepting that this experiment had gone completely wrong because it had. It had gone so wrong after, you know, two points from nine games. It's just shocking. So they've took it on the chin and decided we need to do something now to try and stay in the championship because they could have very easily just said, right, we're going down, but Torres, the man to take us through to, you know, the long term. Um, but they've said, no, let's 
try something different. And that something different is Sean Maloney. And he's been tasked with keeping Wigan up. He had a spell in charge of Hibernian, but was sacked after four months. Prior to that, he was part of Roberto Martinez's backroom staff with Belgium. You've already spoken about it a bit, Justin, but you don't sound too convinced. He had the same apprenticeship as Kylo Torre had under Brendan Rodgers. He obviously started off at Celtic under Brendan Rodgers and moved up into into Belgium's ranks. Um, I just think it's another inexperienced appointment. They've gone the same way with Carlo Torre. Um, but I think the difference is that Maloney's got previous with, with Wigan. That, that might help him. Um, but they need a manager who's just going to come in and get the team organised and do the basics. They don't need a manager who's going to reinvent the wheel. I think that's where Torre fell foul, is he tried to implement a new style of play into a team that was low on confidence, results were poor, goals were an issue, conceding goals were an issue. That's when you just need to just strip it all back and just get them organised. Um, and, and he didn't. He tried to he tried to do what he wanted to do. And I don't think Maloney... I think Maloney may look at that and go, I won't try that. Let's just get them organised and we'll try and see what we can do over time. Um, so I think, yeah, Kotori sort of, you know, he's he's walked, so maybe Maloney could run with this team. I just think that the appointment of, of Torre was, was just poor timing. Um, and the Maloney one, not massively convinced. He's he's just got the same, you know, history as, as Torre. He's just a, almost a copy and paste job. Yeah, I'm of a similar thinking, to be honest, Justin. I think the only difference between Colo Torre and Sean Maloney is the fact that he used to be a former Wigan player. So it's like, you got Colo Torre in, he was an inexperienced manager, very inexperienced because it was his first job, obviously. Um, and now you're getting in another manager who had a disastrous spell at Hibs and is also very inexperienced because that was his only managerial spell before that. So, you know, it, I think Maloney, the, the big difference between him, obviously, apart from, you know, the lack of... Um, well, the fact that Maloney used to play for Wigan is that he may be a bit of a, a more long-term option. So the the way I view this sign, uh, this appointment is that Wigan have almost kind of accepted they're going down and they're thinking, if we're going to go back up, then we may as well get in someone who has more of an affinity with the club and is going to be a long-term option. Maybe Maloney is that. I, I, I don't think this is an appointment that screams we are going to stay up this season, if you see what I mean. Um, They'll go down so, swinging. That's it. I'm not sure they will Maybe. go down swinging. <laughs> They'll <laughs> go down. Um, and I, I, I'm the same as you. I'm not very convinced by this appointment at all. So at least they changed it. That's one thing we can say about this appointment. But I'm, I'm not expecting a, a massive upturn in form because I'm not massively encouraged by this. Let's go to Cardiff. Former Forest manager Sabu Lamushi has been named the new Cardiff boss. He's their third manager of the season after Mark Hudson was sacked. Cardiff legend Sol Bamba is going to be Lamushi's assistant, which I am a big fan of, especially after everything he's been through over the past couple of years. What do you think of this, Justin? It's a bit of an unexpected one, into a bit mm. of a rogue one, really, isn't it? I think it's a bit of a coup for, for Cardiff, to be honest. Considering the last two appointments have been internal appointments, the quote-unquote cheap options... Um, I think it's I think it's a coup to bring in someone of Lamouche's ability as a manager. Um, now, yeah, his, his record at Forest obviously got them in and around the playoffs um, in his in his first season in charge. Didn't quite go to plan towards the end, and obviously a poor spell in the um, in the early stages of the, his, his next season cost him his job. 
but I do think he's a very good coach. He will get that team organised. Cardiff aren't a bad defensive team by any means. It's just going forwards that it's an issue. I think that's the only the only um, only hesitation I have with it is is Forest team didn't create a lot of chances. They were clinical, and you're going to be clinical when you've got someone like Lewis Grabbit, for example, putting chances away. Um, so that's the only way. That's the only place I'm at in terms of. Well, that's it. You know, that's my only. Um, hurdle with the with the with the Lamouche appointment but otherwise I think it's a bit of a coup for Cardiff in their position to bring bring him in I think bringing in Sol Bamber as well would just give the club a massive lift give the fans a lift because he is a club legend he's a legend in in, in any right he's a, he's a great human being and hopefully this would be a good good platform to be, to becoming a coach um, but yeah this is um it's a good appointment it's a really good appointment and maybe some clubs that have had um, the managerial jobs open in recent times may um maybe kicking themselves you sound a lot more convinced than I am Justin <laughs> my my lasting memory of Sabu Lamushi at Forest is how terrible they were in the second half of his uh, first season there and obviously the season the few games that he was in charge of the season afterwards he, he was he was good in the first half of the season. In fact, he was very good, let's be honest. Forrest were class in that first five or six months of the season that he was there. They were playing amazing football by any means, but it was getting results and that's what mattered. But I cannot ignore how miserable they were after that. I don't think I need to remind anyone of them completely bottling it on the final day of the season. Um <laughs> what was it, three or four years ago now, when they had to avoid a seven-goal swing or whatever it was and messed it up royally. And that's, you know, the terrible form from the second uh, from the second half of the first season carried on into the second mm-hmm. season that he was there. I don't, I still don't know really what happened with Forrest in that time, but you, you've got to look at Lamushi for that. And, Considering the standard of players he's got in this team, it needs a bloody good manager to, you know, turn it around how bad they've been. And is Lamouche the answer to that? I'm not too sure. So I'm on the fence with this one, um, mainly because we've seen two sides of a Lamouche team in the championship in one season with one club. That's a good point. Yeah, so I don't know which one we're going to get. It could be. It could work out completely fine, but I'm not totally convinced. And I could very easily see this going completely tits up. But at the same time, I could also see it going quite well. So I don't know. I I honestly do not know. But he's got his hands full with this squad. I can tell him that. Uh, Let's go through all the transfers then. The window closes on Tuesday night. So championship clubs have seemingly gone mad with signings over the past few days. Let's start with Burnley, who have brought in Michael Obafemi on loan from Swansea for the rest of the season. The deal includes an option to buy. The 22-year-old was linked with a move to the Clarets in the summer, but has only just moved. Uh, Justin, this may have been the most obvious transfer of the whole window, wasn't it? Because Obafemi has been campaigning for a move for quite some time now and... (laughs) He has been linked with Burnley for quite a while now, so it only made sense really, didn't it? Yeah, it's, it's disappointing that his spell at Swansea ended so sourly um, because he didn't really kick up for the Swans until sort of the second half of last season. Um, he became a good finish and his form this season has been terrible to the point where does it warrant a move to the league leaders? Probably not. I don't think he's going to be 
will he get ahead of Jay Rodriguez? I know Jay Rodriguez isn't in form, but I would trust Rodriguez at this point more so than Obafemi. And they just spent a lot of money on Lyle Foster. So I think Obafemi is going to find game time maybe a little bit limiting um, at Burnley. I think he would have been better off staying at Swansea, to be honest with you, and not throwing his toys out the pram. It's just massive dis- disappointing. I'm the same. You've already got Ashley Barnes there. You've got Jay Rodriguez there. They've just signed Lau Foster for a lot of yeah. money. So do they need Obafemi? I, I don't think they really do. And I imagine they, they've got him on loan, obviously, but I'm guessing they must have paid quite a bit of money to you know, cover his wages and mm-hmm. the loan fee. So I, I do think while it was an obvious transfer to make for everyone involved... I still find it a bit strange. So I'm not sure how much he's going to play. He obviously works quite well in Burnley's favour because if it doesn't work out, they don't have to sign him and he's not going to be a burden on the wage bill, is he? Obafemi's obviously a very good player. We saw that last season with Swansea. He got double figures despite being behind Joel Pirro in the pecking order at Swansea. And I thought he would have a great season this season, but obviously because he's thrown his toys out of the pram now and you know, been campaigning for a move away from Swansea for a number of months. It's not worked out. So I think it is a bit disappointing, really, that he's done that. And now that he's got his move, I'm not sure it's going to work out for him, even though, Mm. you know, he's been trying to make this happen. So it's a case of the grass isn't always greener on the other side, isn't it? And I think Obafemi might find that after this move ends, because I'm... I'm not sure how many games he is going to play. And if that is yeah. the case, I'm not sure Burnley are actually going to sign him permanently. So, yeah, it's, I'm more interested to know what happens in six months' time as opposed to what happens with this move because I, mm-hmm. I'll be surprised if he's you know scoring goals for fun at Burnley because I, I just don't think he's going to play that much. Um, Middlesbrough have moved for Rotherham midfielder Dan Barlassa. He signed a three-and-a-half-year deal. I think we're both big fans of this one, aren't we, Justin? My mouth's watering at the prospect of him in a Borough shirt in that team. Um, the the four two three one that Carrick's been deploying is is perfect for him. Um, I think he's a long term successor. Obviously, to Johnny House, and it's I think it's the frustrating thing is Housen's form under Carrick has been absolutely brilliant. Um, so it, it would seem harsh to bring him out of the team, but I think he's a he's a player you need to put into that starting lineup. Takes the creative pressure off Ryan Giles, gives Borough an extra avenue of of creativity as well. Just, yeah, really, really good signing for one and a half million pounds as well. I, th- I do think is a bargain, even though his contract's up at the end of the season, because Barlasser could be the difference between Borough going up and not and staying down. I completely agree, Justin. Dan Barlasser has been one of the best midfielders in the Championship this season. And we're talking about a guy who's playing in a Rotherham side, which aren't struggling, but they're, they're, they're kind of like the, the, the level below struggling, if you see what I mean, where they're nearly struggling, but... The I form's been crap this. this season. <laughs> <laughs> the, the form's been very up and down this season, hasn't it? But Dan Barlasa has been the standout player for Rotherham on so many occasions. And he's he's simply a remarkable footballer in that respect. That he's playing for this sounds so disrespectful, but the fact that he's playing for a Rotherham team is, you know, impressive that Rotherham even managed to get him in the first place, really. Because he should be playing at a lot higher standard than the fact he's 26 now. It surprises me that a championship club of a higher standing than Rotherham hasn't come in for him sooner because he's a very good player. He's been one of the best midfielders in the championship this season, as I say. Um, 
it's going to be a shame that one of Howson or Hackney are probably going to have to drop out the team for him because both of them have been in remarkable form since Carrick has come in. But you can't leave a player like Dan Barlasser on the sidelines, really, because he is so very good. And the fact they've got him for just a bit more than one million quid is a remarkable signing. And it's one of them where I think we could look back on this in a few years' time and go, that is an unbelievable signing because he mm. can spark a lot for Middlesbrough. He he may very well be the last piece in the puzzle for them, really, because they've got so many key components in this team and all of them have been playing so well so far, including in midfield, but you just felt like they could have used that bit extra in midfield. And now yeah. they've got him in. The other area where they probably needed to strengthen was up front, but of course they've got Cameron Archer now. So this Middlesbrough team is looking very complete and very exciting. Of course, they're very exciting anyway under Michael Carrick and you know the way they've been playing. But now it's only getting more exciting with the signings that they've made. And Barlas is you know, the highlight of the window in that respect. Sunderland have signed Joe Gellard on loan from Leeds. The striker was subject to a lot of interest from championship sides, but this is an exciting move for the Black Cats, isn't it? Brilliant signing. Um, I, th- I think it just highlights the pull of Tony Mowbray as well because Gellhart was saying at a, a, an hour and a half conversation with Tony Mowbray that convinced him to, to to come into the club. And there was a lot of competition for his signature as well, which is, I think it just highlights the pull that Sunderland have and Tony Mowbray as well. Um, but he's a flexible forward. Um, it gives Sunderland different options. He's, you know, We've not really seen him consistently play in a team yet because he's been a bit part player at Leeds. And there was a youngster coming through at Wigan, but my God, he's got, he's got so much quality. And again, it's just that pairing of Tony Mowbray and a young loan player, a bit like Barlasser, mouse watering at the thought. Diallo's been fantastic for Sunderland. Joe Gellhart, fully expect him to, to flourish at the club as well. Really, really good signing. It's not a surprise that he's chosen to sign for Sunderland, is it? Because you look at the loan players they've had this season, Diallo is uh, the obvious one from that. Um, in fact, maybe the only example, I can't remember how many players they've got on loan, but <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is Sunderland are clearly kind of a hotbed for developing young players right now, aren't they? Because the squad is so young. I think it's, is it the youngest in the championship? It's one of the it's youngest. The youngest anyway. age, yeah. yeah. So Mowbray's clearly, you know, caught a lot of attention from clubs in the Premier League in terms of developing players. And they thought, may as well send him there because he's the best option for them, isn't he? Uh, meanwhile, Leon Dejaku has left to go to St. Gallen on loan. Anton Semenyo has left Bristol City for £10 million to go to Bournemouth. Good deal, Justin? I think so. His form's not been at the at its best this season. It's a shame. Really enjoyed his performances last season. I just think his season's been disrupted. Obviously, the shin injury at the start of the season and the World Cup. Probably not been able to get to yeah in full flow, but £10 million for a player you've developed is always, is always good money. If you hit double figures for an academy product... Yeah, double thumbs up there. Um, so I think it's just kudos to the Brian Tinian at Bristol City for his ability to yeah, get those youngsters ready for the first team. Well, Nigel Pearson hasn't been playing him this season, has he? So the fact you've got 10 million quid for a player who isn't getting picked regularly, I think it's a bloody good deal, really, isn't it? Um, it it's a shame because I, I think Semenyo should have been playing more. I, know, I don't know why Pearson hadn't picked him more often, but to get that much money when you're Bristol City is is remarkable, quite frankly. So I think I'd be very chuffed with that. Um, 
Let's go to Luton where the door has definitely been busy. Right back, James Bree has left to join Southampton for 750 grand. He was out of contract in the summer. Cody Drame has joined on loan as a replacement from Leeds. He was at Cardiff last season. Now, I think it's a shame that Bree's left Luton, especially for such a low fee, but they clearly felt they had to cash, on, cash in on him, Justin. Fuming because he's been the most outstanding right back in the division this season. And come the end of the season, fully expected him to be in our team of the year. So we've got to find somebody else to, to come in. But for 750 grand, it's a bargain. Massive blow for Luton. But Cody Drame showed at Cardiff last season that he's ready for first-team football and he needs, he needs games. And I'm really excited by his, by his signing because Rob Edwards has put this attacking twist on Luton, more attacking than it was under Nathan Jones, in my opinion. So Drame in that, Drame in that, um, in that system, I think, will we'll flourish. Yeah, I, I was really excited by Drame at Cardiff last season. He was... Cardiff made a series of load signings, didn't they? And that ultimately kept Cardiff up, in my opinion. And Drame was probably the highlight of those loan signings. And I was a bit surprised, really, that he didn't get more of a chance at Leeds, really, because mm. he just seems like a really, really talented player. So for Luton to get him, obviously losing Bree is a big blow, but getting in someone of Drame's quality, I think, is a massive, massive boost. And you know, he's the short-term solution, isn't he, for Luton? They'll have to obviously get someone in the summer to replace Bree, but I think that's a more than capable of replacement uh, for Luton for the remainder of the season and for, you know, whatever they want to accomplish this season. Uh, meanwhile, Cameron Jerome has left Luton to go to Bolton on a free. Stoke have been busy as well. They've signed forward Bursant Salina from Sporting Dijon and defender Kiana Hoiver from Wolves, both on loan. Salina is an extremely inconsistent player, so it only makes sense for him to join the most inconsistent team yeah. in the league. Hoiver's an interesting move, though, I suppose. Meanwhile, Aidan Flint has left to go to Sheffield Wednesday on loan. Coventry have been loaned Burnley defender Luke McNally. Hasn't really played for Burnley since signing for them, but Coventry have been sloppy at the back recently. Injuries haven't helped with that, so this could be a very good move for them. Meanwhile, they've also signed Sean Maguire from Preston. Not sure about that one. Watford have brought in Hibernian defender Ryan Portis for around four, £450,000. Connor Coventry has joined Rotherham on loan from West Ham. I will not rest until Coven Coventry is playing for Coventry. It simply has to happen. Uh, Blackpool have given Curtis Nelson a deal until the end of the season. He is a free agent after leaving Cardiff. Meanwhile, Grant Ward has left Blackpool to join Bristol Rovers. Injury news now, and unfortunately, there's been a few season-enders. Sunderland striker Ross Stewart is thought to have done his Achilles. I say thought because it's not been confirmed yet, but Tony Mowbray has said the injury will keep the striker out for a long time. He was stretched off after the 20th minute against Fulham in the FA Cup. How big a blow is this for Sunderland's playoff hopes, Justin? Yeah, it's massive. I, I saw the reports or conversations on Twitter about it, but I didn't, I didn't really actually look into it. That's, 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 um, yeah, it could be could be massive. Um, I'm actually really disappointed because I think Sunderland, we've seen them kick up another gear. They've been sort of cruising without him in the first half of the season because of obviously his injury then. Um, but they kicked up another gear with him in the team. And whilst he's not been massively prolific we've seen them getting results we've seen their attacking play improve massively um yeah that's a it's a massive shame um again we we you know we put something in the conversation of the top six player like Ross Stewart big big uh, big decider for for that potentially it's hugely disappointing as well when you consider the fact that i think in league 1 last season i think he only missed one game and yeah. this season he he's already had 
a fairly serious injury earlier in the season that kept him out for two or three months. And now he's had this one as well, which is probably going to rule him out for the season. So it's it's a very interesting thing to think about when when you think of a parallel universe where roster was injury-free throughout the whole season. How good could Sunderland have been mm-hmm. if that was the case? Considering they're on the edge of the playoffs now, you'd have thought he'd have at least won them you know, a handful of points more and probably would be in the playoffs at this point. So, yeah, very disappointing, really. It's, it, 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 the blow is cushioned a bit by the fact that they've signed Gellard um, and possibly getting Ellis Sims back on loan, I think, will also massively help. So, it's not as devastating a blow as it could have been but at the same time you know Ross Stewart every time I've seen him this season I've been so massively impressed and if he had played more games than he had done then I think when it comes to our team of the season come the end of the season Justin Ross Stewart would probably be in the conversation but we can't really include him when he's only played as many games as he has so a huge blow for Sunderland hopefully it won't be a game changing you know, kind of thing to happen though when you've got mm-hmm. Gallard coming in on loan and possibly someone else as well in the remaining days of the transfer window. Speaking of Sunderland, midfielder Corey Evans has done his ACL. His contract expires this summer as well, but Tony Mowbray has indicated they're probably going to extend it despite the injury, which is nice to hear. Matt Phillips is expected to miss the rest of the season with a quad injury. Huge shame for him because he's been a regular under Court Brown, so really bad timing in terms of yeah. his career. Huddersfield keeper Lee Nichols is out for the season with a shoulder problem. It's bent Ryan Schofield's been recalled from his loan at Hibernian. That's the third Third time Hibernian's been mentioned on this show. Scottish tier podcast. Um, bad news <laughs> for Huddersfield, though, because Nichols has saved them on a few occasions this season. He's just a really good goalkeeper, isn't he? Let's move on from injuries. A West Brom MP has raised the club's off-field issues in Parliament and urged the government to introduce new regulation around club ownership. On Thursday, Nicola Richards, Nicola Richards said West Brom fans are deeply concerned with the club's ownership. Uh, will the government bring forward its response to the fan-led review and introduce a regulator to give fans the power to stop owners abusing club assets in this way and penalise owners whose business decisions are not in the best interests of the club? Uh, the response was from the government that it will be soon setting out plans for reform in football, which is something we heard from Kieran Maguire not too long ago when we spoke mm. to him. So. Look forward to hearing what that has to say. And Wigan midfielder Miguel Aziz had been given a one-match ban for picking up a flare on his debut for the club. Aziz picked up the pyrotechnic, then threw it back on the ground, but admitted an improper conduct charge. What a stupid rule that is. Imagine banning someone for picking up a flare. Honestly, why are people like this? I do not understand it. Let's do the polls, Justin. Let me grab my phone. This is the part of the show where we give the listeners three questions on Twitter because we want to get their thoughts and everything to do with the championship so the first question we asked the listeners was this justin uh, let me just load up my phone who would you rather have in charge of your club michael carrick or slamma billich that's actually a really tough question um because you can have recency bias if there wasn't any recency bias i'd, I'd choose billich but because carrick's had such a good start at borough you'd, you'd edge towards borough so i'm really sat on the fence with that one um so it's, it's a coin toss it is a coin toss billich is it's funny as well billich when he's in when he's in a good mood he's funny yeah, I, I do like Billich. He, he's got a very, he's got a very sarcastic side to him, and yeah. and uh, that does come out in press conferences quite often. But I, I included this question because I think it's quite interesting that you know you've got a young, inexperienced manager like Michael Carrick, who's only managed so many games at this level. And you've got Simon Billich, who's a promotion-winning manager, 
and managed so many you know big clubs in his time yet 76 percent of people said michael carrick and 24 percent of people said slavin bilic yeah. you know strange isn't it um will slavi lamushi keep cardiff up yes or no i th- oh god that's a hard one yes by by a lick of paint on the final day of the season I'm not so sure. 58% of people are also not so sure. They said no. 42% of people said yes. And what do you think of the 3pm blackout? Get rid or keep it? I think you should get rid. Um, there's just no point anymore. Football's televised everywhere. You look at over over the, across Europe, a lot of games are on TV in the US. It's A lot of games are on TV in the US as well. Um, I don't think it will impact attendances because, for example... I went to Port Vale in the week, didn't I? Mentioned it in the last episode. I went to Port Vale last week. Port Vale away with Derby. I'm not going to get that same last-minute winning feeling in the ground that I am on TV. That's what people will miss. I can see the argument for why people think it should stay. I'm not sure how much of an impact it would actually have. So... I don't really care. Uh, 52% of people said get rid. Uh, 48% of people said keep it. Um, So that's the polls. Let's do Scott high or high or low, Justin. This is essentially higher or lower. I'll give Justin eight numbers and he's got to tell me whether the number is higher or lower than the one before. The theme for this edition of Scott High or Ryan Lowe, Justin, is stadiums. I'm going to give you a stadium and you've got to tell me whether it's a bigger or smaller capacity than the previous stadium. How's that sound? Yeah, I like that. And Scott High started this weekend, Puddersfield, so, yeah. And Ryan Lowe took charge of Preston. <laughs> <laughs> you dug yourself a hole as soon as you mentioned Ryan Lowe there, didn't you? Um, so your first number is 22,000, and your first stadium is Turf Moor. Is that Scott High or Ryan Lowe than 22,000? Scott High. It's Ryan Lowe. Has a capacity what? of 21,401. No. really? Yeah. The main stand looks absolutely massive. It's that small stand, isn't it? Um, next to the hills. I can't remember, I don't, I can't remember what it's called, where the, where the dugout is. I am just massively supportive of the amount of confidence you had heading into that answer and then being completely proven wrong. Um, so zero out of one for Justin Peach. Your new number is 21,401. Your next stadium is Meadow Lane, the home of Notts County. Scott High or Ryan Lowe? I should know that. And again, they've got they've got some massive stands again. I will go. I'll go higher. I think it's like twenty two thousand. It's Ryan Low again. Nineteen thousand eight hundred and forty one is the capacity of Meadow Lane. So zero out of two for Justin Peach. What a disastrous start. The next stadium is Portsmouth's Fratton Park. Scott Higher, Ryan Low. I again. It's got to be twenty thousand. These are these are stadiums with supporters who create atmospheres. It is incredibly misleading. So what are you saying? Scott High. Twenty thousand six hundred and twenty. So God. you are correct. It is Scott High. One out of three for JP. Twenty thousand six hundred and twenty. New number. What about Deepdale, Justin? Of course, the home of Preston. Scott High or Ryan Low? They had the main stand rebuild, didn't they? So again, that's really hard to know their average attendance must be around 16,000 so it's got to be Ryan Lowe Scott High 23,404 one out of four for Justin Peach I really wish this was uh, Diddy or Dinty right now 
Um, your new number is 23,404. We're next off to Bradford and Valley Parade. Scott High or Ryan Low? Then 23,000. This is nonsense. <laughs> Valley Parade, again, it's a massive stadium. So I'm going to go Scott High. It is Scott High. You're absolutely God. right. It's 25,136. So that's your new number. Next up is the DW Stadium in Wigan. Scott High or Ryan Lowe? You've got two out of five. 25,606, did you say? 25,136. I think DW is 25,606. So Scott High. That's very specific. <laughs> I said the number, so I may, I may as well use it. It is Scott High. It's 25,138, so it's two more seats than Valley Parade, which is, this is just mad. Um, three out of six. Your new number is 25,136. Next up is Craven Cottage, the home of Fulham. Scott High or Ryan Lowe? Stop picking grounds that have had stands rebuilt recently. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I don't know with their new main stand. I've been to Craven Cottage so many times, but not since the new grandstand was built. So that must have been about 18,000 before that. So I reckon they've added a couple more thousand. So I still think it's Ryan Low. You think it's Ryan Low? I I think it's like twenty-two thousand. Okay, it's twenty-five thousand seven hundred. So Scott High. This <laughs> is bollocks. <laughs> Three out of seven. Turns out this is your big weakness, isn't it? So your new number and final number is 25,700. The final stadium is Charlton Athletics, The Valley. Scott High or Ryan Lowe? Again, the stand's so big. Uh, I quite like The Valley. I think it's a good stadium. I've been there once and there's a cafe opposite. That's really, really nice. I'm just amazed that The Valley is literally in a valley. Yeah, it's always wet as well. Yeah. Well, that Obviously. happens with anyways, doesn't it? You know, rain water goes. Yeah. yeah, water goes down the valley. Like gutters. Like yep. Uh, <laughs> bigger. Uh, Scott higher, Ryan lower than twenty-five thousand. Justin, twenty-five thousand seven hundred. I, I think it's like twenty-six thousand. So I'm going to Scott high. It is Scott high, but it's actually twenty-seven thousand. Twenty-seven thousand one hundred and eleven. Um, which caught me by surprise. I know it's a big stadium, but I did not think it was that big. But there you go. You ended up with four out of eight, Justin. Your Achilles heel is stadiums. <laughs> which really poor. Yeah. You, you usually do quite well at Scott High around, though. But apparently not um, when it comes to stadiums. But this has been the Second Tier Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back again on Thursday to talk about some of the games coming up next weekend in the Championship. Of course, Transfer Window closes on Tuesday as well. So we'll have a big roundup of all the deals that happen on deadline day and leading up to that as well. So we look forward to seeing you then. This has been the Second Tier Podcast. I've been Ryan Dilks. I've been Justin Peach. And a big thank you for listening. Thank you.